going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11 as we continue our study in the New Testament parables, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, as Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus, learning about this faith, a disciple now, and growing. And the parables that Luke has recorded for us are unique teachings and how we can grow and live as disciples, children of God and of followers of Jesus Christ. This parable is known as the parable of the persistent friend. Time permitting, and as we work our way through, we may find that down through history, just like the prodigal son, probably could be named, renamed, where its real focus is. Sometimes this title, The Persistent Friend, gives us the idea that simply by persistence, God gets weary and has to answer our prayers. That's not what this parable teaches. But let's look at this parable in Luke 11, 1 through 13. And if you would like to follow along, take some notes on this as we proceed through, I would invite you to do so. A gentleman took his young son to town, and as lunchtime approached, they went into a local diner for a sandwich. When the food arrived at their table, the father announced to his son, Son, we will have silent prayer for the food today. So they both bowed their heads. Dad finished his prayer. But the young man sat there with his head bowed, his eyes closed. For a while, for a longer while, and it went on for a few minutes. After a few minutes, the child finally opened his eyes, took a bite of his sandwich, went right on eating. The father said, Son, what in the world were you praying about that took so long? With the innocency and the honesty of a child, the little boy responded, How do I know, Dad? It was a silent prayer. All right. <laughs> we learn to pray from children on, and we do it all the time. Most of us wish we prayed more, and that's the truth of the matter. Many of us have questions about prayer. It doesn't take long after someone becomes a Christian. They start asking questions, and they want to know, how does this work? What really does prayer do? How does God hear my prayers? What should I include in my prayers? Is God pleased when I break right into my requests? Or does he expect me to get a lot of things squared away first? Do I have to bow my head and close my eyes whenever I pray? Do I have to close all my prayers in Jesus' name? How come we don't pray the Lord's Prayer every time we begin our services here at Colonial? And the questions go on and on and on. It is an important part of each of our Christian life. And yet too often, it is probably one of the most misunderstood, at least underappreciated parts of my life. Luke 11 begins in verse 1, and it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, speaking for many, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. 
In this verse, this first verse we read that the disciples saw Jesus doing something, something in him, and they wanted that as part of their lives. And then he goes on and he teaches them. He will teach them to pray rightly, righteously, and effectively. And that's the essence of what we're preaching about. So must we. Praying rightly, praying effectively. And what I want to do as we look into this passage of Scripture is first of all to address the matter of this pattern that he will teach them, the pattern for prayer. And he's going to teach them a pattern, and as he goes through this pattern of this prayer, there must be something awfully important as he brings out the various clauses in it, something for us that teaches us the importance of prayer. And that's what we want to focus on. Now, just a little bit of background as we begin. He's going to say to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation." The disciples, as we said, saw something about how Jesus prayed, and they wanted to learn that in their lives. Just a little bit of background. If I turn back for a moment to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 21, we would see where Luke recorded Jesus praying. Listen, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. Luke 5, verse 16, 516. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke 6, verse 12. I read these words in Luke 6, 12. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Chapter 9, verse 18. Luke 9.18, just staying in Luke's gospel alone. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, who do the people say that I am? Verse 28, 9.28, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. The gospels record 15 occasions of Jesus praying. Eleven of those occur in the Gospel of Luke. Now, teaching on prayer was something very common in Jesus' day and was recognized by every disciple of every teacher. They taught their disciples how to pray. However, in verse 1, the request, Lord, teach us. And you could almost put an ellipsis or insert the word, teach us now. There's a sense of urgency. It is actually a command in the imperative. Teach us. And with the, the way it is established in the original language, this heuristic imperative has the idea, teach us now. It implies an urgency. It's a request that, Lord, we need you to do this, and and this is important now is the idea. Now, think about that for a moment. The Jewish people in Jesus' day, in their mindset, they placed a great deal of importance and emphasis on prayer. The Pharisees prayed much in public, and they taught people to watch them when they pray. And they prayed following the example 
I guess the opportunities or times during the day of Daniel back in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, where it says that Daniel prayed three times a day. He would go to an upper room and he would pray. They would go publicly into the public square and they would pray then three times daily. And when they prayed in public, like Luke 18, verses 10 and 11 record, they would pray and they would pray out loud and thank God I am not like this man. And they prayed that way, more to impress people than to commune with God. And those who followed the pattern of the Pharisees would often pray the same prayers over and over and over. They recited then memorized prayers. And the disciples noticed something completely different from Jesus and about him. He could pray all night. He could pray for the bread. He would pray. He prayed differently. So it's not an unusual request for a teacher to be asked, teach us to pray. By the way, in every venue where I would speak on prayer, it's one of the exercises that no matter where in a congregation or a conference, everyone acknowledges the need. If there's a public invitation afterwards or a time, if you would like me to word a prayer for us and God's convicted your heart at the end of the service when we bow our heads and you'd like by an upraised hand acknowledge that before God, this is a need in my life, Lord. Help me to pray more. I would like to word that prayer for you. I do that at the conclusion of a service. Just raise your hand, take it right back down. It's acknowledging to God. And all over, all the hands go up. It's almost an admission of you and of me, we need to pray what? More. It's a reality in our lives. I don't pray the way I should. Over the years, I've been impressed, distressed by the fact that in the second seminary curriculums that I've helped to design as an academic dean, in college curriculums that I've helped to write, we've never put a course in, ever on the theology of prayer. And yet, we send out our local church leaders with no theology of one of the most important things of our lives. What I want to do is talk about this pattern of prayer, about the importance of it, and I want you to notice with me four features that are very important as we talk about the pattern of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to keep your finger in Luke's gospel for a moment because Jesus also teaches on prayer on another occasion, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. He will use the same prayer pattern we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's in a different context. And when we put the two together, we learn some of the most important teaching about prayer for you and me. So I'm going to invite you to keep your finger in Luke, but turn back also, if you would with me, please, to Matthew chapter 6. And let's begin in Matthew 6. And if you'll follow verses 5 through 8 to begin with, let's talk about understanding the necessity of having what I'm going to call, as we saw in Jesus' prayer, he would go alone to pray. And let's talk about this retreat time, as it were, of prayer. And so if you'll go to Matthew 6, let's notice, first of all, as we talk about the importance of prayer, we need to understand, you and I need to understand, the necessity of a retreat time with God. 
In Matthew 6, it begins in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed of them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor in verse 2, and he's talking about it in verse 3, in your alms, do these things not before people the way the hypocrites do. Do it privately. Verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. And then he will go on and he talks. But he does something. He says, and when you pray. And what he's going to do is he's going to begin in this, the necessity of a retreat time with God to begin to speak about a presumption concerning prayer. And when you pray, he's making a presumption. The idea of the original language is whenever. Hotan, it's a temporal clause that just simply anticipates prayer's Whenever. It's, it's not an if. It's a whenever you pray idea. It was just assumed. He's assuming we will understand the need to have a time alone with God. He is assuming we will understand the need to have a regular time with God, bringing that out. The hypocrites are praying, but never alone regularly, probably only in public and at great length. So he makes an assumption when you pray. And by the way, folks, let me, this is an an off the side, but it's very important. It's an assumption, not a command. There are numerous commands in the New Testament about praying, praying without ceasing, etc. Praying, we'll talk about some of those, but this is an assumption. And an assumption is stronger than a command. For instance, in the, the New Testament, you will never find a command to join a church, a local church like this. When you were saved, the moment you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the third person of the Trinity tabernacled within you. At that moment, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, you were placed into the body of Christ, baptized into the body. We are part of the body of Christ. Now, After all Christ has done for you and for me, what he has paid in his blood for you and me and made us part of the body of Christ, just this royal privilege, he assumes you would want to manifest that in his local expression called the what? Local church. It's an assumption. And an assumption is what? Stronger than a command. He assumes it. When you pray, he assumes we would want to talk to God. It's an assumption. And so, as we talk then about this presumption, this understanding necessity of having a prayer, and we talk about that, what he now does then is the presumption concerning prayer. And he's talking about a time alone. I don't know how many of you are presently receiving or on the email our prayer, daily prayer list. I recently bought, since I've come here, an iPhone, and I can get my emails sent to me. And throughout the day, all day long, the care ministry is sending, and I'll get this beep or this buzz vibrate, and here it is. Oh, there's been another, someone in you just taken to a hospital, an accident. Mother's having surgery, a brother's having surgery, and they come all day long. 
opportunities to pray. Amen? Tremendous prayer ministry. By the way, if you're not on it, you need to get on that. And praying one for another all day long. You just have to email the care department and they'll put you on that. And then they put out, Pastor Walter Ross puts out weekly one of these calls to prayer sheets. This was October 25th. And it's from Matthew 6, 6. It's alone with God. Let me read what Walter's written. Is being alone with God essential to intercession for the preaching and teaching of the Word, for asking God's blessing on our youth when they meet in the various colonial ministries? No. In fact, it's usually easier to pray with others because praying together brings to mind different aspects of the needs and people we're praying for. However, praying alone is tremendously important. It's a great privilege and blessing as well as a time of, by the way, spiritual testing. Walter then goes on to write this. Because personal fellowship with God is so vital and prayer is so effective in the fulfillment of God's plan, the enemy constantly attempts to cloud our understanding regarding prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, writes, quote, It is the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition." There is nothing that tells the truth about us as believers so much as our prayer life. Ultimately, therefore, a man discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he is alone with God. And have we not all known what it is to find that somehow we have less to say to God when we are alone than when we are in the presence of others? It should not be so, but it is often. So it is when we have left the realm of activities and outward dealings with other people and are alone with God that we really know where we stand in a spiritual sense as to our fellowship with God, end of quote. That's pretty good, isn't it? And I really appreciate Pastor Ross writing that. Jesus assumes, but notice something else. Let's talk for a moment, not only the presumption concerning prayer, but let's talk about the problems surrounding prayer for a moment. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, and when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. There's an image before you, and what you would see there is, this is a depiction of a Pharisee, how he would pray. He's wearing over his head and across his shoulders a prayer shawl, and it has then... It's a white shawl, and it has fringes to it, and they all represent something. And he's wearing on his arm straps. These are, this isn't a striped sweatshirt. These strings or these leather straps, they actually tie this long piece of leather. But the leather strap has little boxes, little boxes where they write a verse and they slip it into it. Those are their prayers, phylacteries. I'm flying over to Israel a few years ago, and I notice aboard the plane as we're flying, 747 out of New York, we're heading to Tel Aviv, and as we're flying across there at a certain time of the day, all these men get up, these traditional Jews put these things on, they walk over to the door of the airplane. So there's a window there, and then they can look out, and then they can pray. And uh, and so all of them get up, and and first time when they all start walking towards the side of the plane. It's a little unnerving, but the fact that they're all gathered around the door, get away from the door, okay? But they're all standing by the door of the plane, and they're praying to the east as we're flying. Their daily prayers. And the prayer plane took a long time. He did it twice on the flight. 
And they think that by doing this, and, and they did. They wrapped the flackeries or that around their arms, and they were praying. Now, that's how they prayed in Jesus' time, where they would pray like that publicly. There are some problems, and he's going to point that out. I want to point out three. Maybe you can take some of these down. There is a sense, some misunderstandings about prayer. What do I mean by some misunderstandings? Obviously, the hypocrites in Jesus' day didn't understand prayer well. And before we go and point fingers and click our tongues and at them, you and I need to understand that we have some misunderstandings. Prayer itself doesn't have problems. We do as we pull our theology together. There's a certain area of difficulty in any discussion of prayer. It's hard to comprehend the function of prayer within the plan of God and the sovereignty of God. What do I mean? Well, on the one hand, in some of our minds, there is this deterministic view of life. It goes like this. If God knows what is going to happen, why pray? It implies that an all-controlling God will do whatever He wants to regardless if we pray or not. Thus, prayer time is not that essential. On the other hand is what we call this self-deterministic or synergistic, meaning sin together, ergos, energy. We have to work together. In other words, I have to do something to make God work. Taken to its full extremes, it's sometimes known as an Arminianism even in salvation that God does not do anything unless somebody prays. Now, before we leave this, the problem gets a little enhanced in Scripture. There are times, it seems, when God seems to have changed his mind or his direction and did something that appeared he wouldn't have done otherwise. If you read, for instance, Exodus 32, he's talking about he's going to destroy the children of Israel. And Moses pleads, don't do it. Don't do what you said you're going to do. And God doesn't. Numbers 14, verses 11 through 20, God says and declares, I'm going to do this. And then Moses and others pray, and he changes. Jonah 3.10, God relents what he was going to do. And there are times then, for instance, in Jeremiah 14, 7 through 14, what he said he's going to do, he will do anyway. Even though the prophet said, I don't understand how you can bring Babylon in. Please, Lord, don't do it. And he does it. And so we read these and we get a little, well, how does that work? Listen, our commitment to prayer must be this. When the Bible teaches on prayer, God expects obedience. Whether or not we fathom exactly how prayer works is not the issue. Folks, do not confuse God's sovereignty, his power, and plans with fatalism. By that I mean this. Always keep in mind, one, your own free actions, your free will, has been incorporated into God's larger plans. If you do not pray because you conclude, well, everything is predetermined anyway, you are overlooking the fact that God took your prayerlessness into account in his grand plan. God took your prayers into consideration. He worked them into his plan. Let me put it this way. Let's make it real simple. You have not, James says, because you ask not. Does that make sense? Some misunderstandings. Our anemic theology sometimes can 
cause us to have some misunderstandings. But let's also move on as we talk about some problems surrounding prayers to some difficulties with prayer. What are some difficulties with prayer? Think about this. Anyone who says prayer is easy evidences that he or she does not spend much time doing it. Why is it difficult? Well, first of all, you come under the attack of Satan because when you pray, you have entered the spiritual realm and you are in a spiritual battle. Not only that, prayer is work. It is as hard as any physical labor. God says so. Scripture uses terms like this, wrestling, striving, laboring, agonizing. Those are terms used to describe prayer. And I want to say thirdly, prayer is not done out of habit. Now, you can read the Bible, you can sing, you can attend here each week, and you can even witness out of habit. But you cannot do that with prayer. Why not? Because when you get alone with God, you either strive for purity and holiness or you quit praying. It's work. And I don't know if your mind works like my mind, but I can take you into one of my daily prayer exercises. Before I ever turn on a computer in my office or do anything in the morning, I try to spend some time in the Word of God and in prayer. And then I start praying over the events of the day, start thinking about what I have to do and what's ahead and start praying, praying. And I always pray for my kids and my grandkids by name. And I pray God all the time. And through the day, numerous times I pray. And Lord, help them in the choices they make today. Be with them in the choices they make today today. Just keep praying that throughout the day. And I'm thinking about Phil and Andy and Nathan and their choices and what they're doing. And then I'm thinking, and, and I start praying for Hallie and Emily. And so I think of Drew, and I call him Bubba. And I, so I pray for Bubba. And then I got a little man, I call him Bubba. And so I go through all the guys. And I'm thinking, about, I got to call him. And then, oh, and by the way, when I call Phil, I need to ask him something. Um, I wonder if he got his van fixed. Because I know the last time we talked on the phone, he was talking quite a bit about taking his van in. I had to take my van in this week. (laughs) And I'm wondering why the floor mat is is wet. I wish I wouldn't have... Yesterday, I drove down a part of a dirt road, and I really did, and I got dirty... I ought to take it to get... I'll have to call Stephen and ask where he gets his washed. And and I'm... Does your mind do that when you pray? I mean, I'm, I started out here, and I'm way over there, okay, in my prayer life. And, I'm, and, and, I'm, and so I look at my, well, I'm going to spend 15 minutes in prayer. I've spent three minutes in prayer. I've spent 12 minutes zooming around the world, you know. And to stay focused on what I'm praying about is one of the hardest exercises I do. It's tough. But not only that, there are hindrances to prayer. And so as we talk about some problems, there's some hindrances here. What do I mean by hindrances? By the way, it says in Scripture, be not like these hypocrites. They had some problems in in their prayer. Let me read. For they loved to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the main streets so that they may be seen of men. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward in full. Verse 7 in Matthew 6. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't pray that way. 
I'm going to talk about a couple of hindrances in just a moment, but there are some hindrances regarding, for instance, sin in, in uh, Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. John 15, 7, my indifference to Scripture, perhaps. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. So that relationship to the Word of God. How about your relationship to your mate? 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands, dwell with your wives with all knowledge. And it goes on and talks about that. Latter part of verse 7, so that your prayers be not hindered. Or as we see in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 7, is the term hypocrisy. What constitutes hypocrisy? Well, first of all, is praying with sinful motives. It says the Pharisees loved or the desire of their heart was to be seen by men. The word to be seen by men. I have to give you the Greek word for a moment in the New Testament. It's the Greek word theaomai. We get our word theater from it. To be seen of men. He calls him hypocritas. The word hypocritas was used by the Greeks to speak of an actor who acted in a theaomai, a theater. What the Greeks did, if you remember back in, from history, the Greeks had for their actors back then, and you go back in the days of Sophocles and others, they would take a mask. It fit over half the face. And you've seen it. It, was the, and it fit up to the hairline, and they held it on a stick and a handle. And some had a frown, some had a, a smile and you'd wear the mask. The person behind the mask was called a hypocritas, the hypocrite. They put on a mask. What's behind there is not really what you get, okay? And so he says, don't be like them. What they show in public is not what they really are on the inside. They're praying with sinful motives, but not only that, when they do pray then in verse 7, he says, they pray with sinful methods, What do I mean by sinful methods? They prayed using vain, empty repetition or mechanical prayers. He says in verse 7, do not use meaningless repetition. The term is batarizo. It comes from the word bata, 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 and it sounds like that. It's an invented word based on the sound. Bata, 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 bata. It doesn't mean anything. And listen to it. It's just kind of, what is that? I grew up in a Romanish background, Roman Catholic, and for years until we were adults, and I grew up an altar boy, mass server, those kind of things. And we were taught to pray and prayed the Our Father, prayed the Hail Marys, the Rosaries. After all, you pray to Mary. Jesus, may, Jesus is a judge. Mary, she's the mother. Who would ever refuse a mother? She was the matrix. Whatever you need, go to Mary. So I'd pray to Mary. And not to offend Catholics when they do pray. They're sincere when they pray to her. But I would pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among... And then you'd go on and you'd pray to her. But when you had to pray 52 in a rosary, and we were told to pray a rosary a day, and bottom line is, I got other things to do. So the prayers turned into, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Okay, just like that. I mean, I could get through those in five minutes. Okay, And that's that stammering or stuttering. That's how they prayed. That's what he's talking about. Not even making any clear sense. 
Their mind's not on it, is the idea. And bless the food in Jesus' name, amen. You ever would do that? I call it the Christian Hail Mary, okay? <laughs> Mealtime. Our minds, not on it. It was a good exercise this summer when Dr. Farmer then taught us to sing our prayers before the meals. Why? It simply jogged our mind in a different direction. That was important. But he says they resembled heathens because heathens, he says here in verse 7, for that's the way the Gentiles do. They do not know who God is, so they invent gods. They come up with their own conceptions and invent prayers to the gods of light and the god of dark and the god of fire, god of good news and the god of bad news. And so it was common to invent prayers and to rattle them off. And so he says they, they're much speaking, they're polylugia, the idea of many words. They thought the gods could be conned or intimidated, so they pray to some they don't even know what they're praying, and they make up prayers. I grew up then, and when you're traveling, I prayed to Christopher, St. Christopher. We had patron saints for everything, and we prayed to them for everything. And when I lost something, Sister Veronica taught us that you pray then to St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost articles. And Anthony is... Tony, and so she taught us the prayer, Tony, Tony, look around. Something's lost and must be found. Okay? So, and, and, and you laugh, but I grew up as a kid. I found a lot of things that way, all right? <laughs> but so it's like, what are we doing? You know, how do you pray that way? So... I hope you do better than that. The hindrance is to prayer. But let's look at something else, the practice of pray. But when you pray, verse 6, go into your upper room, close the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray then, go to the closet, the tamion, the bedchamber, which implies privacy, secrecy, alone, it's intimate. And by the way, that's how you should pray. That's what Pastor Ross was writing about, alone with God. I'm alone with God, and you pray to him that way. And by the way, when you're alone with God, let me give you some things to keep in mind then as you practice prayer alone with God. Use ordinary but reverent language. Be yourself. Tell the Lord exactly how you feel. Moses complained to God in Exodus 5. The psalmist was puzzled. Jeremiah felt deceived in Jeremiah 20, verse 7. Lord, you deceived me, he will say alone with God. Paul completely perplexed, 2 Corinthians 12, especially in verse 8. I do not understand. So tell the Lord how you feel. Be sincere, pure in your motives. And I was going to read, but what you want to put there is in James 4. Sometimes we pray that, he says, you may consume it upon your own lust, your own desires. And it's totally self-centered. James 4. Pray with faith. I love the Acts 12 episode where they're praying for Peter to be released from prison. And they're praying and praying that he'd be released. While they're praying, the angel comes, breaks the chains, follow me. He leads them down the street to the home. Peter arrives at the gate, knocks. The young lady comes out. And she's just too stunned, runs back in and says, Peter's at the gate. And they look at each other and they go, she's out of her mind. 
They're praying for Peter's release. He's standing out there, and they're telling her, you're out of your mind. That's literally what they said. It's like, why are you praying? So it happens to any of them. See? So as we look at Acts chapter 12, the practice of prayer, pray with constancy. When you pray in faith, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. It does not mean that you close your eyes and drive your car, please, okay? The Greek word is audioliptos. It has the idea of a hacking cough. And that is, have you felt that way? I can't stop coughing. I'm sitting in church. I just can't stop coughing. Well, we don't hear you right now, but it does mean this. At any moment, you could break into cough. So at work, at the office, in the grocery store, in traffic when you're late, waiting for that airplane, the line is long and you're getting frustrated, just stop and what? Break into prayer. Pray without ceasing. The practice of prayer. Notice as we move on here relatively quickly here because I've got a lot to cover. Understand the necessity of having a retreat time with God. Understand the necessity of a relationship with God. Relationship. Back in Luke, and I'll use Luke now for sake of time. When you pray, say, Father, or as it says in Matthew, our Father, our Abba, in heaven, hallowed be thy name, speaks of a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the prophets talked about a relationship with God in the sense that he is my God, my shield, my fortress. After the years went by, they didn't even pronounce his name anymore. They did not speak Yahweh. They didn't say it was the unspoken word. God became somewhat distance, because even the cultures that they lived around, whose gods were fickle and distance, the Jews started taking on some of that. Jesus will teach them to pray, Abba, Father. It's literally the Aramaic word, Dad. Ba, did you catch something? The Aramaic word, Dad. In Jesus' day, prayer always took on the formal Hebrew In the years, Hebrew, with different rules, became Aramaic. But you didn't speak the common language in prayer. You prayed in Hebrew. Kenneth Bailey writes in his commentary, The modern consensus among scholars is that the Lord's Prayer begins with the Aramaic word Abba, and therefore we can assume that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Aramaic of daily communication rather than in the classical Hebrew of written texts. The Aramaic-speaking Jew in the first century was accustomed to reciting his prayers in Hebrew, not Aramaic. Similarly, Muslims today always recite their traditional prayers in the classical Arabic of 7th century Arabia. Both Judaism and Islam have a sacred language. Christianity does not. This fact, Bailey writes, is of enormous significance. The use of Aramaic in worship was a major upheaval in the assumption of Jesus' day. It meant that for Jesus, no sacred language was the language of God. Amen? I can talk to God as a father, which teaches me in understanding this relationship with God that he is personal, our father. He is approachable the way that When I taught my children when they were little and I'd have an office with an 
an administrative assistant. Anybody who wanted to come into the office always had to go through the admin assistant and set up an appointment with Dr. Burgraff, Pastor Burgraff, whatever the pastor's name was. Not my kids. And sometimes they had to be scolded because they just walk right in. Hey, Dad, wait a minute, I'm with someone, son. Knock first. I know, but Dad, it's like, you know, and so you have to tell a five-year-old, you can't do that, okay? But knock and then stick your head in, okay? But you know what my kids can do? Anytime, anytime, they had access to Dad. Anytime you have access to God. Amen? He's there. Understand the necessity of a reverence for God. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A reverence for God. The necessity of a reverence for God which implies what? The exaltation of his name. Our prayer should be filled with praise as they begin. Adoration. Then confession then thanksgiving, then supplication. That's acts. Adoration. And I'm praising him, the exaltation of his name. Lord, I want you to be lifted up in my own eyes. Lord, let me never become too familiar with you taking you for granted. Lord, let me never use your name in vain. Lord, let me never impose on your glory. Let me never discredit your name, but always live in a way that exalts you. It implies rulership. Thy kingdom come. What are we praying for? Praying for the extension of his kingdom throughout the world. And of the 132 times that the word kingdom is used, Basileia, sometimes it, most of the time, 119 plus times refers to the coming millennium. But there are times when it speaks about seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his rulership or what we call lordship in my life means the lordship, and it means then bringing people under his authority. And the idea then, that's evangelism, that they may know God. Also, the execution of his will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're talking about the execution of his will. How do, as you talk about, on earth as it is in heaven, how do the angels do God's will? They do it completely. They do it immediately. They do it constantly. They do it joyfully. It's easy to repeat mechanical prayers. But how often do we really mean and express our lives that are God-centered, God-focused? And then we come. There's that adoration and then this confession. And then there is this thanksgiving. And we come to God, understanding as we do that, understand a necessity then of a reliance on God a reliance on God for our provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. Not only for our provisions, but a pardon. And forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And let us not be led. Doesn't mean lead us. He doesn't lead us into temptation. Let us not be led into temptation. Protect us. That's what we ask God. He taught them how to pray rightly, effectively, And he answered their request. And my time is gone. We may have to conclude with a parable in the future on this, the second part. But it teaches us in Scripture that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? Avails much. The problem is not that our prayers don't work. 
The problem is we need to what? Pray. And pray more. And we have the privilege right now. Let's pray. Our Father, with our heads bowed before you, I would believe, Father, there's not a soul in this room that would not desire even a better prayer life with you. But, Father, our prayer is as we are bowed before you in talking to the Creator God of the universe that you have given us the invitation to pray, to be alone with you. You have told us how to pray, and you have told us in the book of the letter written to the Romans that you will help in our prayers through your Holy Spirit. So my prayer is that we would be more fervent, more appreciative of the fact that we can talk to God as our Abba. Let us do more in our prayers than just ask all the time. Help us to meditate and think on you. Help us in our prayer lives, please. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.